This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. Intelligence is one of those strange words that everyone uses, but almost nobody has any clear sense of what it actually means. University of Cambridge neuroscientist John Duncan has thought about intelligence far more deeply than most spending the better part of his research career involved in trying to clarify what intelligence is and what exactly it might correspond to neurophysiologically. After having read his thoughtful and nuanced book, How Intelligence Happens, I became convinced that John would be a perfect guide to deepen my understanding of both the history and present state of the scientific understanding of intelligence. Today we're going to talk about intelligence. You, sir, are an expert in the scientific field of intelligence and I would like you to give us some sense of, from a scientific perspective, what you mean by intelligence or what we mean by intelligence and why you think it's a subject that's so exciting and worth studying right at the moment. Well, of course, um, people mean many different things by intelligence and there are correspondingly many different strands to the scientific inquiry into, into its nature. One thing that is known uh, about a great deal uh, popularly and a subject of much controversy is intelligence testing. So the attempt yeah. to use psychological measurements to, to assess a person's, uh, a person's brain power, if you like. Uh, there's the study of artificial intelligence where the attempt has been going on since the 1950s, sort of fascinating uh, undertaking to make computers think and to, uh, to look at the analogy between the way they think and the way that we think. Uh, there is a whole biological side to the study where we look at brain mechanisms either through 
um, the effects of damage to particular parts of the brain and how it affects people's reasoning or cognitive um, uh, powers. Uh, modern methods of brain imaging to appear inside the skull and see what's happening in the brain, right. for example, while intelligence tests are solved. So I think what's, you know, what's interesting and exciting about this moment in time is that uh, all these different strands, I think we're beginning to see how they can be brought together and, and put into an overall outline picture of, uh, of um, how it is that the, that the mind engages on and solves the many complicated problems that we deal with every day. Right. Scientifically, it's, it's, it's got to be one of the most captivating and mesmerizing and, and to some extent, I would think intimidating questions to be, to be studying in all of science. I mean, you, one often hears these expressions such as, there's nothing more complicated in the universe than the human brain. Um, I suppose it depends on which human brain one is looking at. <laughs> we find it fascinating, and I think um, for a fairly obvious reason, which is that you know, every animal has its niche and our niche is essentially our intelligence. What is it that's, that's made Homo sapiens, the, right. the, what they are on the planet? It's this ability to go into, into new situations and understand how they're structured and then bend the world to work out in our favor. So we find it absolutely fascinating. And I think this is both, to some extent, the strength, but also some of the risk of the study. I think one of the things is that we overvalue intelligence so that we have, so we make so many value judgments on the basis of simply that word, you say. I hate this stupid weather, it's really right. annoying me. Right. Uh, and I think that value element really gets in the way of trying to, of trying to investigate this as a scientific enterprise. So much so that, that, that one could argue that to some extent, at least in the popular consciousness, the word intelligence has almost lost all meaning. I mean, from a scientific perspective, one wants to be rigorous, one wants to define what it is that one is talking about. But in terms of the man on the street, as you say, it, it's, it's, it's almost... Uh, it's extremely unclear what one means. One yes. could be talking about knowledge, one could be talking about intuition, one could be talking about insight. I think we all have some basic sense of, uh, of what it is. Um, but it's, uh, to study something rigorously and scientifically, of course, is, is quite different. And you've written a, a book, a popular book, called How Intelligence Happens. And I, must, I have a confession to make, because when I started reading this book, I, as somebody who has a scientific background but who doesn't have a psychological uh, background, was um, okay. So I'll be—I have a physics background. I'll be—I'll be—I'll be candid with you. Um, and in the physics community, uh, there is this sense of uh, arrogance and self-importance, and oh, only physics and mathematics is worthy of proper study, and the rest of these people don't know anything about science. And then when 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 I combine this uh, unfortunate natural uh, bias with what one hears around us. Oh, there's intelligence testing, and there are these objective scientific ways of evaluating whether Johnny is brilliant or whether Johnny is stupid, and so forth. There is a tremendous amount of skepticism that, that I had. Oh, you can't possibly just, just uh, assess somebody with a number, and you can't put a label on somebody like that. And what's the scientific basis for this sort of discrimination? And this is all just hand-waving anyway, because we don't really know what we're talking about. We can't even figure out a way of navigating robots around the corner, let alone talking about uh, these uh, ex extremely complicated, sophisticated cognitive processes. So I, I began uh, with, I think it's fair to say, a relatively closed mind, um, but only relatively, because I was prepared to be uh, somewhat open-minded. And at the beginning of your book, you make a, a very persuasive, and what to me was a very shocking argument, where you point out a particular piece of statistical evidence, a correlation, that has existed, has been known to exist for a very long time, 
that is scientifically rigorous and begs for some sort of scientific treatment and explanation. And I was, uh, I was overwhelmed and uh, had a clear sense that, that there is certainly something rigorous, scientifically important that is going on that needs to be explained and, and certainly hooked me. So I think perhaps it would be useful if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. I mean, let me say something first about this question of, of measuring people with a single number. Actually, right from the very beginning of, of scientific study of, of cognitive abilities, which goes back now just over 100 years, it's been perfectly clear that you cannot, <laughs> and it's obvious in every, from everyday, life, right, everyday right. knowledge anyway, <laughs> that you cannot assess somebody's abilities and certainly not their worth through the single number. In fact, there are an infinite number of things that you can measure about people which may be important about them in, in their lives, which certainly are important about them in their lives. And similarly, we value people for so many different characteristics, right. uh, including you know, their honesty, their good humor, their ability at math, their ability to play football, and so on, so an infinite number of different things. So this is the truth. Right. And if you think you're trying to explain uh, everything important about somebody with a test, it's obviously doomed. As right. far as I know, nobody has ever thought that, though many people criticize them for right. thinking it. Right. However, uh, what started with the work of a sort of British psychologist, Charles Spearman, uh, in the early part of the 20th century, was the study of something much more specific than that, which was, as you say, uh, uh, a empirical discovery um, drawn from experiments on, on measuring people's ability to do things and putting forward a theory to explain why this discovery might, might have been made. But the basic discovery is that if you give people a wide set of different things to do, they may be tests of memory, of, of problem solving, of, um, of identifying briefly flashed stimuli, of deciding which two weights is heavier, many, many different things. Uh, and similarly, they can be in the laboratory like that, or they can be measurements of how well they achieve goals in their life, such as what job they have got, or what their salary is, and so on. And you find that overall there is a tendency for all of these things to be positively correlated with one another, which means that on the average, to some extent it's true that a person who does well on one thing also is more likely to do well on other things. And the extent to which that's true is, is you know, a measurable quantity. That You can see how much it's true that any, any two types of of task or activity you look at are related to one another in that way. And Spearman proposed one of several possible theoretical explanations, but Spearman's proposal was that perhaps there was something in the mind or something in the brain, though he wasn't in a position to think of brain terms, right. but perhaps there was something in the mind which contributed to a degree um, to success in all sorts of different activities that you undertook. Uh, which he proposed as being the G factor, the gen he, he named the G factor or the general factor. He intentionally kept it abstract like that because he had no idea what it would be in the right. mind that produced this, but he just right. was, this was one possible explanation for this pattern of positive correlations. And since then, I suppose a large part of the study of, of differences between people has been an attempt to understand what it is in, in terms of either cognitive information processing or brain processes could be the underlying explanation for this Spearman's idea of a, of a G factor. Right. But it's worth remembering, it is a theory, it's a theory, there are other possible explanations of the data, and it's there to explain a particular pattern of results, which is this universal positive correlation between different things. Right. There, so, so there are two very different things that are happening. Um, one is, the, the phenomenon itself, and the other is the possible explanation. And 
I, I must confess, I was not aware of the phenomenon itself. And to some extent, I think this runs somewhat, maybe it's, a, maybe it's an intuitive idea, but in terms of the popular consciousness, this is not something that I think we, we often acknowledge. So for example, uh, a mother will say to her children, well, we're all good at very different things. Yes. So you're good at X, and you're good at Y, and you're good at Z. Yeah, and that's and, true, of course, because, if, gee, if it's there, it's only one thing. Right, if we part. all have, if we, uh, uh, and, and also if, if all of the children have high G, of course, well, then <laughs> maybe they will all be good. But, but I think the, the important thing, and the thing which really struck me as, as, as vital and noteworthy, and, and perhaps I'm beating this to death, but I think it should be emphasized, is that this is, a, this is an absolute concrete statistical result based upon a wide sample of individuals that there is a strong correlation with people who are good at any one thing will also tend to be good at something else, which may be completely different, as you say. It may be involving uh, music, it may be drawing, it may be reacting to stimuli, it may be solving puzzles and so forth. And of course the correlations are not one-to-one -one, and the correlations are not strict and there is a wide variety of human experiences but this idea that you have a strong statistical piece of evidence is extremely suggestive that something very clear is going on and I uh, was not aware of this at all hmm. and 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 this may be shocking to you as a, as a professional uh, cognitive scientist that uh, there are people who claim to be reasonably educated that are aware of these things and maybe that's maybe I'm the only one and in society who's not aware of it, but I suspect not. I suspect that this is something which at least should be uh, brought to the attention as a piece of scientific statistical evidence. Now what the actual theoretical explanation and underpinning uh, might be to, to best explain this, as you say, we could argue, I'm sure there's quite a bit of uh, debate within the, the psychological community yeah, and so is. forth. <laughs> but, but I think it's, it's really worth emphasizing that very few people would argue that this is uh, a piece of statistical scientific evidence that calls out for some sort of explanation. Yeah, I think, I think if you're going to study the mind or brain of science, you have to be doing it this way. You have to be starting with the same way you would do any other aspect of science. But it's more difficult with ourselves because we come with this all this advanced baggage of, of how we think about human nature. Um, but I think if you're going to make progress as a science, it has to be done this way. You have to start with, with observations, either quantitative or qualitative, and theoretical structures to explain those observations and right. not try and step too far out of that to say, how does this relate to how I used to think about the mind and the brain when I was a normal person rather than a scientist? Because often that, right. that gets you into severe trouble. And actually what you say about what you would have assumed before you, um, before you read the book, I think captures something that's very important about, about everyday thinking concerning ourselves, and that's that it's immensely flexible and people are perfectly happy to entertain flatly contradictory views without ever noticing that they are. So I think it is true that in everyday life, we do say to uh, especially Americans, Americans love the idea that everybody in a sense has equal opportunity right. which, and uh, to, to tell, tell all their children they can all be president one day. Absolute nonsense, well, but anyway, it's, it's nice so, to so believe it's not it. It's you actually need, offer, uh, need to have uh, strong intellectual capacities to be president. That's a whole, that's a whole other issue. Well, you need yeah. something. <laughs> um, and um, you're right that in that environment it's very common to say, oh, everybody has their strengths and that's a great thing, which I think that it is. But then meanwhile you go, in, you go into the job interview next door and people are saying, I really like that candidate, that's the smart one. What do they think they mean by that? <laughs> they, don't mean, um, they don't mean 
well, they mean that, that, that they believe this person will do well at the job, no matter, not necessarily because of, of, of being good at this particular thing, but because they just felt that they, they, they got more out of them intellectually. Right. So I think people always have an intuition, which, uh, both sides of which are true, which is that there's, to some extent, at least it's true, that the same people tend to be able to flexibly address themselves to different sorts of problems. Meanwhile, very importantly, uh, we have all sorts of more individual talents, skills, areas of expertise, which are also significant. So I think people kind of can, can point themselves either one way or the other in everyday thinking. And what's important about the scientific program is that for a given area of work, such as predicting how well a person will do in a new job when you're, when you're interviewing them at the start, it's something that you can actually measure. You can say, how well does, the, does their ability on this test predict how well they do on that job? Right. And of course, this speaks to, to something very fundamental, I think, about science, which is independent of, uh, put crudely, independent of how we necessarily would like the world to be, uh, the job of scientists is to, d to discover the way the world is. And if there is this statistical correlation which exists, we might think it's somehow unfair, we might think it's not appropriate, we might think it's, 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 not, uh, it's not in our best interest, or it is in our best interest. But it's the job of the scientist to actually say, wait a minute, there is a fact which is here. There is something which can be established with some degree of, of, of confidence, with a high degree of confidence. And our job is to try to explain and understand exactly what the mechanisms are behind it. Ethically, you have this interesting line in your book um, in terms of the, what you said about Americans and, and uh, perhaps the, the concerns, the sociological, the ethical concerns that they might have. You say that you admitted to a friend that you were worried that pointing out these differences in abilities would make every American hate you. Or, or I think it was the friend that said that this would make every Indeed. American hate you. Um, but I, I presume that's not the case. I, I presume there are some Americans that, that, that still don't hate you, nonetheless. Most Americans, luckily, don't know anything about that based on the sales <laughs> of my book. So. One of the things which, uh, as we again return to the science, so there is this, uh, so correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is there is this result which begs out for an explanation. There is this correlation. There is this, uh, and, and Spearman called it this G-factor. Another aspect which uh, I thought was particularly interesting and to me counterintuitive is that while this G factor could be assessed and should be assessed by a wide statistical sampling of all sorts of different activities, you could compare that with some specific tests, some specific activities and say these specific activities on their own or close to on their own could provide actually a very good indicator of this particular G factor. Um, and and, and so uh, from, that was a surprising result, but also to my mind gave me some clearer sense of scientific structure to the whole nature of intelligence testing and IQ testing. Um, and maybe you could talk a little bit more about, about some of these tests and this notion of, uh, as you called it, or as I'm sure is called in the literature, G-saturation, the idea that you can take one or two tests and actually have some statistical measure of, of the G-factor across a wide cross-section of the population. Yeah. Well, I agree. This is possibly the most important thing that's arisen out of the whole of Spearman's whole whole theoretical take on intelligence and the G factor. Um, the fact that then it becomes a matter again of empirical measurement. What sorts of task or activity are most related? Uh, are most related to G? Um, and it turns out that by far the best tests uh, are like sort of simple puzzles that you might find in a book of children's puzzles. 
what does that mean to say they're the best test? It means that when you measure how well a, people, a person does these puzzles, you get the best broad ability to predict how well they would do all sorts of other things that they undertake. So whatever it is that these puzzles are measuring, it seems to be something really important about their mind and brain functions. Right. Right. And that means it's like a flag stuck in the, in the sand, if you like, saying, look here to the scientists. So if you could understand what's going on in these tests, um, you've, you've got a big step forward in understanding what the G factor might be. And I can show you a couple sure. of these tests. Um, so as I say, typical prob uh, you know, simple problem-solving activities of the sort you might find in a book of puzzles. So in this one up here, see if I can use my mouse, this one up here, what you're supposed to do is decide which of these alternatives down here correctly fills in the missing square at the top. And take a few minutes to think about it, but uh, a few seconds to think about it. Um, but it involves a certain amount of dividing the problem up into parts, thinking, oh, well, I'll take into account the difference in shape between left and right, and I'll take into account the difference in size. And eventually, once you've got all the bits of the puzzle worked out in your mind, then you can come to the correct conclusion that the answer is going to be this one over here. Um, Yay! <laughs> good for you. <laughs> uh, and this you know, it's kind of an in, a middle level of difficulty in a typical, typical um, G-related test. So it's a problem that... I would say, roughly speaking, half the people will get right and half the people will get wrong. Uh, here's another example down here where you're supposed to find this hidden sh this shape hidden somewhere in the camouflaging background. Again, it's, uh, it's, it's the sort of activity that's quite well related to the G factor. Um, uh, that would probably take you a little bit longer, so I'll not give you time to solve this one. Or well, here's a number series where you get 1, 2, 5, 26. You're supposed to work out what the next step would be. Um, in all of these, I think, to me, the critical cognitive step is to find the sub-problem, the part of the thing that is, that is going to be, allow you to make a typical step forward. Um, for example, this one down here, how do you solve this? Um, I'll tell you, I remember solving this one for the first time, and it's, but it seems obvious to me that there's, there's one place where you're going to go. It's going to be very hard to work out anything about the series from 1 and 2 sure, because there are five. so many relations right, between right. 1 and 2. Right. And 2 to 5 is still not a brilliant clue. Right. But five, 5 to 26, absolutely. you think, how am I going to get from 5 to 26? Right. And at that point, squaring 5 is likely to come to mind. It's because you've, you've seen something that's a big clue in the puzzle. But once you've squared the 5 and added 1, then it's pretty easy to go back to the rest and see that you've, you've got the rule. So it's this idea of breaking things down. We'll get back to this a little bit, a little bit later. Uh, but this idea of breaking things down, imposing a plan, having a goal, having a structure to your thought it, uh, is, is so vital to be able to, to succeed in all of these types of puzzles. Yeah. In uh, my, my um, I would say at this stage, hypothesis, certainly not accepted scientific fact, is that that process of, of finding useful structure within complex problems and, de and dividing them into... into um, solvable parts, as it like, is the absolutely critical thing that G is concerned with. Right. And if that's true, then it relates to many other aspects of the study of intelligence in an interesting way. For example, I mentioned earlier the activity from the uh, mid-1950s onwards of trying to uh, make computers think, think like people, right. so the activity of artificial intelligence. And right from the start, there was something very interesting, which was that much of what we can do, this goes back to the 
point we made before that we have many, many different sort of strengths and abilities and brain functions, all of which are important in making us who we are. Many of those things, such as looking across the room and being able to recognize that there's some tables, there's some cameras, there's walls, the layout of the whole room, right. computers are still absolutely hopeless at that. Right. You know, it's just, it's just, they're just nowhere, what we do effortlessly, computers uh, are still nowhere near able to do. Right. But what we think of as intelligent thinking and reasoning, computers were very good at right from the start. The first artificial intelligence enterprise, serious artificial intelligence enterprises, was cracking problems like proving theorems in formal logic. This was the work of Newell and Simon and others uh, mm. in the 1950s. The sorts of problems that we look at and think, whoa, that's, that's something really brainy, uh, which is very challenging. Uh, and that turned out, for some reason, to be one of the easiest things to adapt computer thinking to. Right. And in my opinion, this also is a major clue that the whole secret of how computers think is essentially finding a way to begin with a complex problem and identify within it some smaller subproblem that it knows the solution to, uh, and then concatenating these into a whole series like the steps of a mathematical proof or something. This is what computers like to do, and I think this is really quite close to the heart of what it is that's, that's measured in tests like this and therefore is related to G. So, I mean, one of the things I, I, I had wanted to, to ask you about um, is this notion of how these sorts of tests relate to IQ tests and intelligent tests. Because I think most people are familiar with the notion yes. of IQ tests. And, and often these are very controversial. People point out with very good reason that, that these tests may be cultural dependent, they may be language dependent, they may be knowledge dependent in short. And it seems like, um, from my experience of, of reading your book and, and, and getting a sense of the lay of the land, that intelligence tests in the psychological community seem to break down into measuring two different types of, uh, of knowledge or intelligence or awareness. And one is this notion of crystallized knowledge of things that actually do depend on what we've learned before, if I understand it correctly. And the other is this sense of fluid knowledge, the sense of being able to solve new problems without necessarily a huge amount of uh, a previous knowledge or baggage or techniques that we're able to somehow form a way of, of finding the goal, finding the solution using our mental processes. And these sorts of tests that you're referring to here, these very tests that are such great measures of, of Spearman's G all on their own, are the tests of fluid intelligence. Is, mm. that, is, that, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And again, this is something I think uh, in our everyday culture, we have, we don't, we're not always aware of the distinction, though once it's pointed out, it's obvious that there are a whole load of things that we tend to call intelligent, which really are simply a matter of the kind of education that we have had. Right. So for example, people tend to be impressed with, people, with uh, by a person who uses long words or is able to construct elaborate sentences, or for example, or for that matter, make mathematical proofs. But to a large extent, this has to do with, with what you were taught rather than the sort of person that you were. Uh, and then there's the other side, which, as you say, is people try to pick up with tests of this sort where you've, start, you've made a serious attempt to minimize the amount of knowledge that would be needed. I mean, it's very in that respect. Obviously, if you haven't learned anything about squares, you're not sure. going to solve this sure. problem. Sure. Uh, and but that's sufficiently general that most people would, would have the awareness. To, well, in, 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 in the fluid intelligence test, the attempt is to make sure that the basic knowledge will be available for all those people in the community you're trying to test. Right. Of course, that may be learned knowledge. It may be if you went to a completely different culture that it would be 
that the test would no longer be applicable. Sure. But the attempt is to try and measure something about the basic brain function rather than about the particular knowledge that has been put into it by a person's experiences. Uh, and we can argue about the extent to which that's completely successful, but certainly it's true that fluid intelligence tests have very different property from, from crystallized knowledge intelligence tests. The most salient case being what happens in old age. In old age, sadly, fluid intelligence falls off catastrophically. Um, it probably peaks somewhere in your teens and then changes rather slowly into your 50s and then begins that's to really so, That's so depressing. You seem so sure of this. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a big one. No, 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 one da no one's ever done an experiment where they don't find that, I don't think. Really? Um, no statistical outliers? No, no oh, yes, it does, are... all of these things, all we're talking but about... Massive statistical outliers. So much so that one might not even consider them outliers. No? <laughs> no. Um, there are, there's very little data on following individuals through their lifetime to see how much, how much variability there is in people's, people's progression along this. But as, as an average trend, there's a very big fall off with old age. Mm -hmm. Whereas on crystallized intelligence tests, for example, vocabulary or probably your ability to write a nice integrated piece of prose, even which is a slightly higher level use of language than simply knowing what a word means. But there's very little evidence until you really start to advance substantially in age, that that sort of thing is going to decline. So the basic idea, which has been around since the 60s and probably before, is that knowledge, once, it's, once you've acquired it, is fairly solid. It's, it, takes, um, it takes substantial degenerative changes in your brain for it to disappear. It can happen. I mean, there are fascinating conditions of people who have the opposite scenario, really, where degeneration is in a particular structure of the brain, the temporal lobes where knowledge of the world is stored and gradually lose their ability to tell you what a tiger is and why it's different from a horse. See, that's not where I wanted you to go. I wanted you to go to say that fluid intelligence could actually increase, not, not knowledge intelligence could decrease. But, um, but, I'm aware of nothing that tells you uh, it would be a good thing to do. I wonder if this, this might, uh, I'd like to get back to the, the story of G and your particular story, uh, your particular contributions and awareness uh, towards uh, towards understanding that better. But before I do, just based upon what you were saying, um, there's a, it, it, of course, in the mathematical science community, there is this sense that if one doesn't make one's great breakthrough by the time of 25 or 30, then you're done, basically. Mm. And I think to some extent that's a, that's a bit of an exaggeration. Um, and, and there have been many examples of people who've made significant contributions um, they, as they proceed uh, in life. But for the most part, there is certainly something to it, statistically, that, that some of the greatest, most uh, provocative and revolutionary ideas in the mathematical sciences came from people who were, uh, yes. who were quite young. Whereas when you contrast this with the work of a historian or the work of a judge or the work of people who are clearly distilling vast sums of knowledge and, and finding links and being able to utilize their repertoire of, of, uh, of experiences, that it tends to go in the other direction. People's great philosophical and historical life's work often happens when they're in their 50s or their 60s. So it seems like this is very, this, while it's anecdotal, uh, these ideas are very much in keeping with what, you, what you've been describing here, that the, that the mathematician would be relying more on this, this notion of, of novel fluid intelligence, whereas the, the philosopher and the judge and the historian would be relying more on this collection of, uh, of experiences. Of the ability to integrate a large right. body of knowledge which gradually is built up through your lifetime. Right. Yes, I think that's almost certainly correct. 
Charles Spearman himself, incidentally, was very concerned about this puzzle, that he seemed to have invented this method for measuring the G factor that was so important in a person's life. And then pretty soon it was discovered that this would be at your ma uh, the maximum in your 20s. And then he would started to say, so why is it that, we, <laughs> that our governments are run by 70-year-olds uh, and you know, all, major, all major activities tend to, tend to have the organizational part done by, done by older people? And I guess it's another proof of what we talked about at the beginning, that the G, I think, is something important and, and very interesting to understand at the level of brain systems. It's only one thing about you, and it's, you know, it's right. by no means uh, is to say that it, that it is the best predictor of, of, of everything that you may undertake. Right. But it does exist, and it is there. And there is this statistical correlation. This G does exist. We have some ways of measuring it. Uh, reasonably precisely and since we all believe that thought processes uh, are, are originate in the brain and that's if we want to study why people are better at certain cognitive tasks than others and we have to look at the brain the question is where is it in the brain yes and and let's look neurophysiologically let's let's we have this scientific uh, piece of evidence which is begging for an explanation and we should do more than that we should try to explain so the story shifts back to you, uh, and, and you as a, as a postdoctoral fellow had an epiphany, uh, maybe that's not the right word, but it's, it seemed the way you were writing it uh, quite close to that, as to how we might neurophysiologically get some sense of explaining not only better what this G was, but maybe even where it was in terms of where it was in our brain. So, Yes, well, um, I mean, let me step back a bit and... Um talk about the layout of the brain and what the different parts are good for. Right. Um, much of our early knowledge on this comes from uh, the 19th century onwards on the consequences of damage to particular brain regions in patients with stroke or, or tumours, uh, uh, other neurological conditions. And the, result, the, the picture that you see is kind of this fascinating uh, patchwork of functionally specialised regions doing different things. For example, probably most people know, visual information hits your eye and then is passed along nerve fibers to the back of your brain in the occipital lobe uh, and arrives, it begins to be processed there to understand the layout of the visual world around you. And if you have if a stroke patient has damage right at the occipital lobe, they can either be rendered completely blind if it's, if it's too close to the beginning of the system, or they might have inability to recognize faces or to navigate their way around a visual environment. So. Um, many separate brain modules, if you like, doing specialized things. Uh, similarly, speech. Everybody knows that with a stroke in the left hemisphere, the person can lose their ability to understand speech or to generate speech or the combinations of the two. Right. Sometimes quite fascinating, tiny little islands of inability, such as the inability to read simple function words like a or but or the, and yet they can still read a word like chair or crocodile or hippopotamus. So wow. they can, they, really, there's specific words that they, 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 they can't actually... Or classes of words. This, right, this, in this uh, condition of deep dyslexia, the result is that the person can read so-called content words, often complicated or low-frequency words, but they can't read the, what will seem like the simplest or easiest words like but or and. Uh, and you, you have know. a difficult field, man. Yeah. <laughs> no, <it's> a, <laughs> 
and so on. So almost every aspect of behavior you can think of, a memory, um, control of the body, reaching out to a particular part of space, being aware of things on one side of space, often damaged in brain, in brain injury. Um, so all of these things suggest a picture of, of, of um, substantial modularity of a complex organ, the brain, and different parts are, are responsible for different parts of our mental lives, if right. you like. Um, and in that context, what could be the basis for Spearman's idea of G? And let's remember again, G is just a theory. There are other ways to explain the data he was trying to explain. It was just his theory. Um, and I guess both first from the study of brain damage and, now, and then later from the study of functional brain imaging with PET scans and functional MRI, uh, an answer has started to emerge and go, goes back to these, these puzzles that we're looking at here because we can ask, what is it in the brain that is active while people solve puzzles of this sort? And it turns out that the answer is uh, in some way, I mean, somewhat complicated, but also surprisingly simple, in that it's far from the whole brain that is, that is specially recruited when you're doing tasks like this sort. Instead, it's a very particular network in so-called frontal lobes, which are the part right behind your forehead, and the parietal lobe, which is sort of top and, top and rear, if you like. In fact, we'll show a picture here in case. Um, so here at the top, you'll see again, the person is being asked to solve this puzzle, not unlike the puzzles that I gave you. The, and then in the middle, in the outline of their head, or here the brain has been removed from the head by computer, you see this pattern of activity. Um, I was pointing up here to the, to the frontal lobes and to the parietal lobes, which seems to be the specific core brain system that's recruited by tests of this sort. And very interestingly, if you give many different sorts of tasks, tests of memory or language or, or um, even uh, identifying faces or, or um, holding something in short-term memory, this same network uh, tends to be a part of the brain's response to that. Often all the other individual modules that are important for that particular task, such as a language module, they're active too. But a part of the brain's response is this what I think of as a core network related to intelligence or G. And so whatever it is, just it, it's, it's something that's important in organizing many different sorts of activity, which is just what you should think if it's going to explain the G factor. Right. And much of what we're doing now is trying to understand what's going on inside these regions of the brain as, as problems are solved. When, when, you, when you first brought out this uh, description of this theory in your book and you described how you came upon this, this particular development, you talked about some specific experiments that you were doing. You talked about, and, and correct me uh, if, I, if, I don't, if I don't represent this correctly, but you talked about you and, and your, your partner, and your partner uh, was somewhere off in a, in a van somewhere, I believe, yes. and he was conducting tests very similar to the ones you showed before about finding, uh, finding these shapes in a, in a larger shape. And your tests were, uh, and then the, the, the people who were participating in those experiments would then come from being in the van to over to your office or your room or wherever it was that you were. And you were testing them on a series of experiments, I believe, that had to do with, uh, they would hear something in their left ear or they would hear something in their right ear and they had to identify particular signals depending on uh, whether it came in their left ear or their right ear. And this was prefaced by a certain tone. So if they heard one type of tone, they would, they would have to focus on what was coming out of their left ear. And if they had another type of tone, they would have to focus on something out of their right ear. Um, 
And, and you pointed out that, um, that some people were better at this sort of task than others, and, 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 and what struck you as particularly noteworthy after a while was that the same people who were, uh, had difficulty with your particular tasks had difficulty with this, the task that you know, we talked about before, which is finding the shapes and so forth. Um, and, and I'd like to ask you some specific questions about that, but one of the things that I thought was, uh, that, that struck me you made very clear that the people that were having difficulty with the tasks of uh, identifying what came out of their left ear as opposed to what came out of their right ear, they understood the instructions. And, and you would ask them, what am I supposed to do? And they would, they would tell you, this is what I'm supposed to do. But somehow they, they, they didn't actually do it. And this was somewhat mystifying. Um, and I was wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit, a little bit more about that. I have some specific questions yeah. for you. But. Yeah. yeah well, you know, have, I, have, I, have I explained the, the situation correctly, or have I, have, I, uh, have I got it all mixed up? <laughs> uh, you explained it extremely well. Um, and indeed, this possibly was one of my first, first exposures to the power of G, that is, to the power of positive correlation, or the same people tending to stumble and have difficulty in apparently quite different situations. So as you say, one of the tests we were using, or my colleague and friend, Frank McKenna, was using was finding those figures hidden in camouflaging backgrounds. And some people have immense trouble with doing that task. To a degree, it's hard to imagine if you're doing it effectively yourself. Uh, people can sit staring for literally minutes without making any progress. Um, right. So there were those group of people. I was doing a task. I now, we've studied this for another 30 years, so we know quite a bit about this phenomenon now. And it doesn't actually matter what the task was. What matters is that the task had a number of different parts to it, and you would give verbal instructions explaining what, the, what it was the person was supposed to do. In this case, it happened to be, as you say, listening to tones, deciding whether to pay attention to speech in the left or the right ear, listening to what they were told, repeating some of the words, shifting ears. But it was a task with multiple parts to it. And what um, happened was that occasionally somebody would clearly have verbally understood everything that you told them to do. They could repeat the rules back to you perfectly. And then they do the whole test completely wrongly. Part of it was just lost, left out as if it didn't exist. And it was very striking that the whole, this pattern of behavior would continue, not with any sense of disturbance or that the person was doing something wrong, just as if they somehow hadn't clicked that this wasn't what they said they were doing at all. <laughs> and as it turned out, it was essentially, the, it was very much the same people who had trouble with the camouflaged figures as, as had trouble with organizing their behavior to this new set of rel relatively complex instructions. And indeed, people who would do badly on standard tests of fluid intelligence. So this phenomenon, again, seems to be a strong flag in the sand saying, look at this, look at this failure to do what you say you're going to do, because it's strongly related to whatever psychological or brain processes are measured in G. And it immediately caught my excitement because there is, in the literature on people with brain damage, a particular type of patient who's known to do this sort of thing in a more extreme way, even, even in very simple tasks. So here's a classic example. The, um, the experimenter says, when the light goes on, I want you to lift your hand up. The light switched on. The patient says, I should lift up my hand and sits there doing absolutely nothing. 
Now, obviously, they can lift up their hand. In fact, if the experimenter then says, look here, I switched the light on, you should lift up your hand, then they do, then they, they do it. But somehow, the knowledge it was of what was supposed to be done and the conditions that the light had come on and it should be done now wasn't enough to draw out the right behavior. There's this clash between the knowledge and the actual, and the actual performance, just the same as I was seeing in my test. And these are patients with damage to a particular part of the brain, again, the frontal lobes, and was in a way led into the brain imaging experiments that, that, that later turned out this core intelligence network. So it's as if these people have, have a difficulty in, in imposing their will. This is, this is the way I interpret it, and maybe this is wrong from a psychological perspective. But I have this sense, they may understand something in theory, but they don't, they don't say, I'm going to solve this problem using these particular, using the information that's available to me. It's, it's clearer to see when you, when you have to pick out a particular shape in a, in a larger series of shapes. But even to the extent of, uh, I have these instructions, I'm going to do it. I'm going to focus on the tones in my left ear or the tones yes. in my right ear. I'm going to move forwards. I'm going to, I, here's my task and I'm going to do it. I'm going to integrate all the things around me and I'm, I may understand it in theory, but that's not enough. I'm going to go to the next level and actually implement that. I'm goal-driven behavior. And it seems like it's, this is the fundamental characteristic or set of characteristics that, uh, that it's almost like a, like a, like I would say, maybe this is the wrong analogy, but almost like a, a meta software issue controlling the brain. You've got these facts, but you want to put it all together. You want to set a goal. You want to solve the problem. You want yes. to go forwards. Um, and this is the, the this somehow uh, is lacking in, in some subset of these people who do typically quite poorly on these G tests. Yes. People often wonder how much this has to do simply with motivation. So you could do experiments where you say, okay, if you get this one right, you're going to get $500. Uh, I've never tried that experiment, uh, partly because I'm pretty convinced that it doesn't work, in that often you see people who really are struggling, uh, want, to do, want to do what you're asking them to do, but still they just can't get it all organized in their mind. So my take on it is that it's much more to do um, with the ability to focus on the exact part of this complex situation that is important right now. We talked about that a, li a little bit in the, in the case of solving the number series, where you find something you right. focus on and right. it's, the, it's the key. Right. And even when you're doing uh, much less problem-solving-y type of tasks, for example, simply following instructions, I think it constantly happens if you give a person instructions for a task and then you say, now do it you can see that events start to happen, it's all just a sort of complex blur. And, and what you need to do is to pick out exactly what matters and produce a little episode of attention to that, solve that part of the problem and then move on. And I think this is really what was happening in my test, that, for example, if people ignored the tones as they came by, it was much more that when a tone there were words, there were tones, there was me sitting there, there's a whole complicated situation. And it didn't happen when the tone sounded. But right. the brain focused around that and thought, okay, tone, that one is low, it means the right ear. Right. And of course, when we do that sort of thing, we do have the experience of an act of will, if you like, but I don't think it's the sort of simple motivational aspect of it that's important. I think it's much more the organizational aspect of right. it. So it's a sense of synthesis and a sense of, uh, of selection. Of focus. Yeah, selection. focus, and so, which focus is the same thing as, as selection, if you right. say. It means that you take part of the problem and, and not the rest. And interestingly, I think this is also very closely related to what many people think of is as the heart of what's special about 
about the human mind, and that is the power of abstraction, the idea of being able to think abstractly. And again, sometimes we tend to think of abstraction in, if you like, rather abstract terms. So we think of, oh, somebody who can think abstractly is a philosopher or somebody who can solve complex problems. Right. But I think there's probably a simpler way to think about abstraction, and that is the ability to see the common important thread between a whole load of instances which are different from one another. This is what we mean by abstraction. We right. mean that that is an instance of justice, no matter whether it happened in the court or the playground. And again, if you can see we're now very close to the idea of attention or focus. We're picking up just one critical aspect of a situation and throwing away all the other things that right. differ between them. So I think that probably this um, brain system and, and um, its measurement in G are also very much related to this heart of human thinking of the ability to abstract out just what aspect of a situation is critical for the current moment. There's a wonderful example you give in your book when you talk about a problem of how to tile a chessboard with two pieces that are removed. Um, and so one can imagine, we don't have this in front of us, uh, but one can imagine a chessboard with the two white pieces at the corners being removed. And the idea is you have to tile uh, this with, uh, with a set of, I don't know, dominoes or something, some, some particular tile which, uh, which is the length of two of these chess, chess, uh, two squares of the chessboard. And, and so you mention um, the way that people might set about doing this problem. And otherwise intelligent, reasonable, educated individuals might, might take an enormous amount of time to try to develop the solution and still in vain. But then when you focus on one key principal aspect, namely this notion that any particular tile that you have, which is two uh, squares long, has to cover, <coughs> excuse me, at least one white and one black square, any way you do it. And then you recognize that you have a chessboard with two white pieces removed, you realize immediately that it's impossible to do that. And that notion of that extra little bit of information, looking at, as you put it, the right particular mm. piece of information, having that piece of focus, that's what we would necessarily associate with somebody who has that wonderful ability to be able to solve the problem and penetrate to focus on exactly what it is. And it seems like the frontal lobe uh, patients that you were talking about before, they're almost the opposite extreme. They can't somehow select, they can't look at the, they're, they're disorganized, they're somewhat distracted. And, and, and from your book, it seems in the literature, you're left with um, the, the obvious sense that there must be, or there might be, a correlation between those that, that are customarily distracted or unable to focus on the right piece of information and what seemed to be going on in the patients that you actually had in your experiment. What struck me as interesting is that's not necessarily the sort of thing that naively I would have associated with intelligence. I guess when we think about intelligence, just an off the street, there's a sense of, well, someone that can come up with the right answer right away. Yes. Or someone that can just, uh, maybe there's this confusion, we talked about this at the beginning of the show, um, the, the conflation with intelligence and knowledge and so forth. But there's a sense of, well, that person's really bright because they're fast. Yes. They're able to go right yes. away. But what you're saying, uh, at least forgetting about the word intelligence, but looking at this G factor and looking at this particular uh, phenomenon which needs to be explained, there's a sense of, no, there's this focus, there's this uh, concentrated attack, goal-setting attack, which is linked up to this ability to be able to solve these types of problems. And that's quite different. Um, and and uh, before I ramble on uh, indiscriminately, there was, a, there was a wonderful example that you also gave about the sea captain who was able 
to do the opposite of, of, of the problems that these frontal lobe patients were able to do, um, and it, it, uh, of this HMS surprise during the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, I don't know if you remember, because I read your book probably more recently than you. I love Patrick O'Brien. <laughs> this is a fictional sea captain, but a beautiful example. Oh, really? Of well, a fictional sea captain? Yes. Oh, see, I, t I, yes. I, thought, this was, I thought this was real. I, I had already added this oh. to my experience. Well, let me recommend <laughs> to you the Patrick O'Brien series. Okay. Once you start on the first one, you'll read all the way to the end, inevitably. Um, Yes, I mean, what you say about speed is very interesting. If there is actually a very um, much of, of, of what I think is controversial, probably all of it. And one very well-established camp in thinking about the G factor is that it is, it is very much to do with mental speed. And what is the evidence for that? Well, the evidence is that if you measure how quickly people can press a button in response to a light, shall we, see, shall we say, that it does correlate with, uh, with other things, including tests like, like uh, the puzzles we've been looking at here. Right. But of course, we know that I already, we've already established that's a universal law. All tests positively right. correlate. Right. So I am not particularly keen on a simple speed explanation for the obvious reason, that if you measure how fast a, people, a person can press a button in response to a light, yes, it has some positive correlation with other things, but not that high. Whereas if you use tests like uh, puzzles or the matrices or, or a number series, then the correlation is much higher. So to me that says it's much more, you're much more getting close to the critical cognitive or brain processes by looking at how these complex problems are, are solved and probably divided into parts than you are trying to look at very simple processes like simple mental speed. Right. That said, of course it is true that how quickly you can do something is related to G, no doubt about that. And in my opinion, the more complicated what you're being asked to do is, the, the better that correlation tends to get. And again, I think this probably reflects the same thing, that to do complicated things fast usually means you have to be focusing on the exact thing you're doing right now as opposed to what you were doing a few, a few hundred milliseconds before. And my suspicion is that this is really the core of why speed is often known to be, is, is often found to be so related to what we think of as smartness. Let me go to the, the pictures of the brain uh, and ask you to talk a little bit more about that. But just, just before I do, uh, again, at the risk of being redundant, let me just summarize, because I, I think this is such a fascinating story. Uh, I, I think it's worth being uh, erring on the side of clarity, at least from my perspective. Here we do, some, we do some tests over 100 years ago, and we find out that there's this thing called G. We find out that there are, and that's, that's a real effect. We find out that there are some... Uh, experiments which are extremely good indicators of what this G are. Then you and your colleague do some other experiments, not necessarily thinking about these things mm. at all, and, and you develop the, the idea, the understanding, that um, you have some physiological understanding of, uh, of what might be behind this G, that the same people who are performing badly on standard G tests seem to be acting in very similar ways towards people uh, who, who you've read about in the frontal lobe literature. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> which leads you to suggest, getting back to my question earlier, if this G factor is real and it's in the brain, where is it in the brain? And your sense is, well, it should be related to the frontal lobes. And then we, then we move towards this notion of these pictures that you're showing up yes. here. What exactly, what do we know about the brain? How can we figure out this activity? What's really going on here when I look at these necessary patterns? What are the diagnostic equipments telling us? And what do your experiments, uh, based upon your intuition and based upon your, uh, your sense of, of the link with the frontal lobe, what do they tell you? 
Yeah, well, this whole thing, of course, is progressing at lightning speed. Well, it seems like lightning to me, though, I would say a time course of, of um, decades, half decades rather than minutes. Because when we started this line of thinking, which was in the early 1980s, our evidence about um, assignment of function to different parts of the brain came largely from brain damage. Of course, that's extremely coarse. Why? Well, it's animal experiments give you better data, but human experiments are very coarse because the damage that you end up with varies randomly from one person to another. It rarely respects the exact boundaries of, of the particular um, parcel of the brain that, you, that is functionally important. So it's hard to get anything other than a very, very blurred view. And that's why in the 80s we were thinking in general terms about the frontal lobe. The transformation that happened um, in the late 80s and since has become an absolutely massive worldwide research enterprise is the invention of methods to use first PET scanning and then MRI to measure which part of the brain is most active while different types of activity are undertaken. So how do they work? Uh, in both of those cases it's rather indirect. What we're actually interested in of course is the communication, the electrical communication between this tiny neurons. We have a, probably about 10 billion neurons in our brain, so you can get a sense of how small each one is. Uh, miraculously, they're able to extend over long lengths and speak to one another, despite the fact that they couldn't, couldn't be seen without a microscope. So that's it. And the individual neuron, if you like, is like the individual person in a the conversation. They're the one who is transmitting a message saying, this is what I believe I've seen out there, for example, if it's in the visual system, and telling the rest of the brain that your particular face, shall we say, is, is there. Um, sorry, that's a rather oversimplified story, but anyway, I'm just get, trying to get the idea that the individual neuron is what is the, is the, is the entity whose activity right. you would like to know about. It's sure. the basic computational unit of the right. brain, if you like. Um, meanwhile, in functional brain imaging, in its present state, all we can measure is the activity of millions of these the average activity of millions of them in a little bit of brain about the size of a peppercorn. Um, and of course, within that, there are going, it's like listening to the whole volume of noise coming out of a city, if you like. Luckily, it's not quite as bad as trying to listen to the whole volume of noise coming from a city because nearby neurons tend to be doing somewhat similar things. So you can get some sense of the signal, but you can imagine how crude it is. And unfortunately, also, the real neuron is communicating on a millisecond time scale with tiny little pulses of activity that send a message and last just uh, last uh, just in the region of a millisecond. Whereas what we can measure with functional MRI is changes of blood flow caused by a bit of the brain becoming active and requiring more oxygen and therefore the, the vasculature responds by changing the blood supply. And that takes place over a course of seconds, so it's thousands of times slower right. than that. Um, so what I'm looking at when I look at these particular scans, I'm looking at increased blood flow, which is, which is indicative of increased energy, saying this part of the brain is using more energy, it's more active, and therefore more blood is actually flowing in. Yes. So uh, again, uh, on the one hand, it's terribly exciting because uh, one might imagine that it's, it's impossible to get real-time views of, or close to real-time yeah. views of what people are actually thinking. On the other hand, it's not quite what we would what we would ideally like, because what we would ideally like, so far as I understand, is we would like to be able to measure the actual neurophysiological 
firing. So yeah, that's the communication of single of individual neurons and patterns of neurons, populations right. of neurons. But PET scans are working effectively the same way, right, as as functional MRI Indeed. is working. Yeah, very. So in fact, even much slower time scales. So the, so fMRI was a, was a substantial step forward in in uh, terms of temporal precision and the sorts of questions you could ask. But still, we're very very limited. So to go back to my story. What we see with this method, despite its limitations, is of course much more refined than what we could ever have understood by looking at brain damage. Um, so this, we're now not talking about the whole frontal lobe by any means. The frontal lobe would be sort of this whole area like this, part of it hidden underneath the, um, the temporal lobe here, and a similar side, if you're looking from the inside of the brain outwards, there's a whole further section. Right. So it's quite a, quite a tight little network within that which we can see with functional MRI, which we could never have got from brain damage, and the same in the parietal lobe. So now we've, this method is useful for targeting attention on the exact bit of the brain that we're interested in, but still is very limited in how much you can peer inside it with this method and say, so in computational terms, and that the time scale of the millisecond time scale, or tens of milliseconds of time scale of actual thought, what is going on in this system. It can tell us some things, but there's a lot that it can't do. This will all, I'm sure 50 years from now, this method will not be used. Instead, we right. will have invented ways to get highly spatially accurate and temporally close measurements of actual electrical events in the brain, which at the moment we simply don't have. I guess just a, a, a small pragmatic question. So I've had an MRI on my knee, uh, which uh, probably didn't display a tremendous amount of neural activity, at least I hope not. Um, but when I had my MRI on my knee, it was it was extremely noisy, um, and um, and I was told to lie very very still, and uh, and I I did at least I think I did. Uh, so the, I had the MRI and then I came out and so forth. I could imagine um, if somebody is told to think about a particular set of thought processes and lie very very still, it might be quite difficult to actually do as an experimental cognitive scientist to get people to be lying incredibly incredibly still so that you can actually measure neural activity and to even be thinking about things while, while this noise is going on. It must, must prove quite challenging experimentally as well. It, does it or are there, are there aspects of functional MRI that, are, that, I'm, that I'm missing somehow? It is challenging, but the challenges aren't necessarily the ones that would immediately come to mind. So in fact, once you're, you do have to get the person to lie still, but if the person is told to lie still, they generally can lie pretty still. Okay. So occasionally people move too much and have to be thrown out of the experiment. But told to lie still, and then they have a screen in front of their eyes, which is mounted inside the MRI scanner. Right. And events occur on it. For example, it might be this problem that you're sh that's shown at the top of the picture here. And they have to think about the solution and usually press buttons to indicate an answer. So that all works reasonably well. The main problem, in fact, and the noise, though the noise is loud, it's only loudish, and usually people are equipped with earplugs, so okay. they're not feeling deafened. They're not feeling as if you're walking. So they can concentrate, but there's, yeah, there's no issue there. Yeah, concentrate, fine. The real problem for me and many others is that you're lying in there in a rather dark environment, and it's a bit noisy. It's like taking babies out in the car, and pretty soon you're struggling <laughs> to stay awake. That's the... <laughs> so I think probably it's, it's certainly true that the results of this method are heavily influenced by people dozing off or almost dozing off. <laughs> and of course, the other problem is that it's rather a confined environment. So there are a significant number of people who, as you slide them in, say, I want to get out. You know, um, it's, 
I find, again, a slightly funny thing that just for a few seconds you feel this, you know, the first time you go in, you feel this slightly claustrophobic, panicky sense that you know, things are out of your control. Right. And very quickly that adapts and then you're bored stiff and, as I say, dozing off. And have you but, done it yourself quite, quite often? Yeah, okay. I've done it reasonably often. Actually, I was rejected fairly early on because my brain is such a mess that <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't considered representative of normal. What is, what is a mess, scientifically speaking? I mean, what, what were you... um, it's hard to say. In front of the temporal lobe here, I have two uh, large, empty, essentially fluid-filled spaces, which are called, are called arachnoid cysts, probably congenital, which meant that that part of my brain never developed properly. Um, wow. is, this, is this statistically significant in cognitive neuroscientists? I mean, do most neuroscientists have this condition? <laughs> no, it's, it's exceptional <laughs> and probably without functional consequence. <laughs> it's hard to say because the brain just luckily is, as it develops, it's pretty plastic and it's happy to develop around obstacles. It's a marvelously robust instrument. So, so let's, let's get back. So we, now, we know what scans are. We know what your particular uh, ideas and what your theories were. So, what, so go back to, and I, you mentioned some of this before, but perhaps it's worth a, a brief recap of what sorts of things you actually found and, and what this means for your particular theories and the, and the future work that you might have in terms of what other things you'd like to test and, and how you'd like to develop your theories in terms of the physiology of the brain. Yeah. Well, this is all very much ongoing, of course. I would say we're very much closer to the beginning than to the end of the enterprise. But let's summarize where we've got to with what we've talked about so far. We've identified a particular network of structures in the brain. We know that somehow these are important in the G factor, assuming that's the right explanation of Spearman's data. Um, we know they're important in organizing the brain's response to all sorts of different cognitive challenges or tasks because we see them active so frequently. And now, and we, we suspect, though this is just my hypothesis, this is by no means universally accepted, that critically what we should be looking at is the ability, as I said, to decompose complex problems into a series of focused processing or attentional episodes that allow effective solutions to be found. In a, goal-directed, the structure of goal-directed behavior right. to be created. Right. So these are the leads we've got from what we can do at this level. Now, what we would like to do is to peer inside these regions of the brain and find what neurons are actually doing and how patterns of activity evolve as problems are solved or as an attentional episode is created. And we're very much in early days about for this. To a degree, you can do it with fMRI because crude though it is, um, if you look at the exact pattern of activity within one of these regions, as a person thinks about different things, for example, if they're doing a task where they have to discriminate uh, the letters X and O, you could look at the exact pattern of activity for X's and the exact pattern for O's. And remarkably enough, crude though the picture is, there's enough difference sometimes to be able to read what it is the person's actually thinking about. Wow. Um, so it is kind of a first wow. step of, brain, of, of reading somebody else's mind with a machine. Of uh, course, though it is, we're, we're, we're um, significantly you can closer to that. differences at that level. Yeah. That's yeah. Um, these experiments have been going on for five to ten years now, and I'd say we're still somewhat finding our feet with the exact methods that work best, but to a degree it, it works surprisingly well. And especially back here in the visual system, for example, you can get quite detailed information about what sort of image a person is looking at. Mm. So that is one method by which you can ask questions such as, suppose I ask you to focus attention 
on um, two different things. On one, one trial, ask you to pay attention to this cup, and on the other trial, ask you to pay attention to this keyboard. Then we can see that in this part of the frontal lobe, the representations to a degree follow that, that it seems as if neurons are being able to take up the information that you're paying attention to right now, just as you would want if this system is constructing this little micro fragment of cognition, if you like. It's very interesting cool. if this is true, because it's not at all the established neurophysiological rule of how the brain works, right. where people tend to assume that a particular neuron does a particular thing. For example, it recognizes a pair of staring eyes if it's part of, of social processing. Around, yeah. <laughs> or it codes there are experiments on rats running around environments like this room with recordings made in a part of their brain called the hippocampus. And then you find that in that context a single neuron will turn on when the rat's in a particular part of the environment and off all the rest of the time as if the as if the, this structure is building a map useful for navigation. That's a system that's been worked out in quite a bit of detail in rats. Um, but what we seem to be imagining is true in, in this um, in core intelligence network, if you like, is something quite different from that, where neurons are extremely flexible in their properties. And instead of just doing one thing all the time, being specialists, they're generalists and will pick up the information that you need to be thinking about right now, at the same time filtering out all the distracting other parts of the cognitive blur around you in the world that would stop you focusing on what really matters. It's amazing to imagine what sort of flexibility that might entail on the neuronal level for neurons to be doing. Indeed. Is that, that's, that's just also a fascinating question. Um, what is known, uh, let's think about a neuron back here in the occipital lobe, so in the visual system. Predominantly what that neuron gets is visual information. You can trace visual information, you can trace its connections back to the retina and, and um, through multiple steps. So visual information is what arrives at those neurons. In the frontal lobe, frontal lobe is connected directly or indirectly very widely to most other bits of the, of the brain, certainly cerebral cortex. So it's getting many, many different kinds of information. And then these neurons within the frontal lobe communicate very widely with one another. So it's very plausible to believe that each neuron is actually has access to many, many different kinds of things. And therefore, there's the potential for it to give many different sorts of activity patterns. And then you need to think of a physiological mechanism by which its inputs are gated so that right. whatever matters right now drives the cell's activity and everything else uh, is kept out. And this, how that could happen is a fascinating question, but I'm fairly persuaded that something of this sort must be going on very strongly. Hey, let me get back to um, maybe some more, uh, a couple of general comments. You were very, very clear throughout that this is your theory. This is your particular way of interpreting experiments data. Um, this is your explanation for, for G and what G means and where it exists and how, how we might move forwards. The implication being, uh, I think, twofold. In the first case, this is science. One doesn't know. One builds hypotheses. One checks them. One moves forwards. Um, and presumably, the, the second aspect is there are other people who think different things. There are people who think, God, oh, Duncan's crazy. That's not that yeah, it's this way, it's that people. way. It's, yeah, sure. There are lots of people who think all sorts of things about everybody that, uh, and so forth. And, and, and of course, there's a healthy understanding that that's the way science is done, and that's the way science should be done. It's not uniform. Everybody has different views. What are some of the other views, the other interpretations of what's actually gone on, and what are some of the criticisms that people will level against you 
um, because uh, your views don't happen to conform to theirs. Yeah, I, I may, you talk about this as my theory, so let me let me um, register my British embarrassment to a degree about that. <laughs> so it's true that uh, uh, this. The, the, the sort of integrated story that I've told here, probably few people would agree with all the parts of it, but there are various, you know, various of the subparts. There will be quite a, quite, quite a number of scientists around the world will have come to similar views. Uh, that said, as you say, there's, it's, um, there are a lot of alternative takes on many aspects of this problem still. On, I think probably the most widespread view in experimental psychology is that the idea Spearman's idea of G is highly misleading that positive correlations should be explained in a different way um, first well articulated by a, another British psychologist Godfrey Thompson in the uh, early part of the 20th century just after Spearman's work but I think implicitly believed or explicitly stated by most people in the field and there the idea is that there is no common reason for positive correlations that any two tests correlate simply because they're likely to have some aspects in common. They might, we talked about the brain being filled with different functional modules. So here the idea would be if you take any two tests, they're likely to have a couple of modules in common, and so they'll show some positive correlation. But there's no universal explanation for, for um, the sort of broad pattern of positive correlations. So in, all in Spearman's words, when he, he talks about his G and his S as, as the two units to be able to uh, indicate whether or not somebody would be good at any particular task, the idea would be that there is no G because there's just S. And there's G, loads of S's. And G just yeah. emerges as this average of, of, yeah. uh, of, of all these S's for any particular task. Yeah. So the S's in modern brain terms you might think of as being the functions of all these many different brain modules. Right. So that I think is still probably explicitly or implicitly the most popular view. And it's easy to prove that if you simply look at data on correlations between people's performance on different tasks, the two theories are completely indistinguishable. They can always be moved around to explain right. one another's data. Right. Um, and in my opinion, these brain imaging data are one of the strongest, um, probably the strongest argument against that. Because if you believed that what was really going on in tests like these problem-solving tests with all the different modules working. See these different modules around. firing at different yeah. times. But, and to see one core system that seems to be right. specifically important is very much not what you would have expected right. from that point right. of view. Now, so now the debate changes, moves to a new level. If we accept that this core system is somehow the most important thing, can it in its turn be divided up into separate functional parts? So again, there isn't what the G has many separable components or several separable components to it. And I think, at least physiologically, the answer to that is almost certainly going to be yes, because um, it's hard to tell from this, these pictures. But these within this network are included some really very anatomically different structures with um, different structure within them of the cells and the way they, they're connected to one another, but also very different connections to other parts of the brain. Right. So it's extremely unlikely that all the different parts of this network are doing exactly the same thing. That would be rather crazy. Sure. But, uh, but how we can break the network up into its components and see how they interact with one another to build uh, attentional episodes, that I think is, is, is unknown and is a, is a major 
major but, question but, for the future. That, that objection strikes me more as a refinement of your of the idea of G rather than uh, an argument in, in kind against it, as the S argument would be. Well, yeah, one man's refinement is another man's <laughs> novel <laughs> individual contribution. Uh, I agree with you, <laughs> but many wouldn't. But, I, but anyway, I certainly think this is going to be one of one of the right. major topics of, for expanding this this line of work further. Um, and another thing that uh, we haven't talked about, but it's worth emphasizing that if we want to answer questions like this, again, MRI is a very crude technique for doing it. What's much better is to look at the actual individual neurons within each structure uh, at the time scale they're working and then perhaps work out how a pattern in one part of the network then feeds right. on to influence and create a pattern in the next part. And some of these experiments can, so for this experiment you need electrodes in the brain that can actually record neural activity, which can be done in, in human patients for usually people, epilepsy patients who are being explored to find the epileptic focus before, before um, surgery. You can have often many electrodes inserted in the brain, it's all completely painless because there are, right. no, there are no pain receptors in right. the brain. Right. And then you can actually get a window on what neurons are doing as, as the person uh, undertakes a bit of goal-directed behavior. And similarly, the same sorts of experiments are also done. We were talking about rats running around the environment in animal experiments with electrodes inserted in the brain trying to see what neurons are actually doing. And those experiments, again, give a, give a much more detailed picture of what I was talking about that, right. again, shall we say in the region of lateral frontal cortex, that um, as behavior unfolds millisecond by millisecond, you can see these tightly focused um, patterns of activity which pick out the particular thing that the animal has to be processing right now. So we need, uh, we need better technology, we need better processing power, and we need those physicists and mathematicians to work harder to give us better diagnostic tools. Yeah. To actually, yeah. I'm sure it will happen that some, somehow, either through MRI or other means, people invent a method to measure what you want to, which is the actual electrical activity right. of neurons. Right. For example, looking at the synapses as the neurons communicate with one another with a, an MRI machine or something similar that gives you nice temporal, uh, nice spatial precision of where you're looking in the brain. Right. And when that happens, our whole, our whole topic is going to be transformed. Then instead of, um, at the moment, we are frantically trying to see through a very blurred lens what's going on in the brain. Um, then we're going to have a beautiful lens and instead we're just going to have this absolute flood of data where there are, as I say, literally billions of processing units, each communicating through thousands of connections with other ones. Right. And at that point, the problem is going to be trying to condense these data into some form of comprehensible framework. And this is, you know, the adventure of science. I think we have essentially no idea of how that enterprise will unfold. But I am quite sure that one way or another it is what we will be doing 50 years from now. That's going to be a lot of fun. Let me, let me, let me, because I'm, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure it's going to happen. It's, the question is when it's going to happen and, and whether we'll be around to actually see it. But, yes. Uh, and whether you'll You've be around. You've got a better chance than me. Well, not fair. Whether you'll be, well, whether you'll be actually able to participate in it uh, is perhaps uh, most interesting. So let, let, me, let me conclude perhaps by asking the $64 million question, uh, which I imagine that other people who are uh, thinking about this might, might have asked. And that is, again, let's, let's recap before I ask the question. So here's this G thing. And you, one of the most intriguing things about the experiments uh, when you talked about the people with the tones in their ears and so forth was 
not just that these people were unable to somehow synthesize and develop this goal-directed behavior, but that with enough work, you mentioned, if you're careful and patient and work with these particular individuals, then they actually could, many of them could be brought around and, and could actually do the, do the required mm. tasks. Yes. And presumably, that makes, that gives one hope, it makes one speculate at any rate, that if this G factor uh, is as we expect uh, as, as some sort of sign of intelligence broadly defined and um, and if there is uh, if there is a way of actually improving the performance of these uh, of, of people who seem to be having difficulty doing these sorts of things can uh, does that mean that we can actually increase our intelligence to some extent or, or let's, let's not mm. even use the word yes. intelligence because perhaps that's too loaded a word but there is a sense that we might be able to uh, learn to improve our cognitive abilities in, the, in these standard tests of fluid intelligence we should we could we might be able to improve our own g-factor um, with the right sort of training with the right sort of operations with the right sort of uh, well, determination. Experience how, 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 however, um, is that reasonable? Is that feasible? Is that is that possible uh, in 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 your mind? Is there anything to that? I'm certain that it's possible, um, and I'm equally certain that we have very little idea at present how to do it. Why am I certain it's possible? Because. Uh, among the many things that have raised sort of downright antagonism and dislike to the study of G is the idea of its genetic component. And most experiments show that indeed there is a substantial genetic component. Sure. The understanding of the particular genes involved we're far away from, but it's pretty clear there is a strong genetic component. Everybody seems to be very interested in this and find it, you know, that, that's where attention is focused. To me, it's interesting, but it's not the most interesting thing. The most interesting thing is that no matter what experiment you look at, there's always a strong environmental component as well, which means that somewhere in a person's life, stuff did happen that really affected um, their scores on tests like this. And, of course, nobody cares whether the scores on tests are changed, but since the scores are so predictive of how well you solve problems in your everyday life, that implies indeed that some kinds of experience do enable a person to learn better to solve the problems that they care about. And that is, you know, is, is very big news if you could only find right. a way to do it. The law of research in this field is simple and depressing. And that is that it's very easy to train people to do a particular thing, including, as you say, the people in these experiments on, on my attention switching. You could always persuade a person to switch their attention effectively with enough focused pointing on what they should be doing in this task. But that's of no interest, of course. What's of interest is that it then generalizes to something else that they actually care about in their lives, and that's what is really difficult. So training um, is very effective in the context of the exact thing that's trained. Getting generalization, broad generalization, to other problem solving is absolute murder. And though there are some hints of things that work, that's a very, that's progressed very, very slowly. Of course, people have been extremely interested in the idea of training yourself to be brainier um, for a century or more. Uh, so an enormous amount of work has gone into it and very little has come out the other end. Not none, but very little. Um, and indeed, I would love to um, devote some of my remaining life in research to the question 
of how, given, given the ideas we've been talking about in G, that is uh, dividing complex problems into parts and producing good focused attention on the components, how you can come up with methods to treat, teach probably children, because I think children's brains by far are the most, or minds are the most plastic, to, uh, to, employ, the, to employ what they've got more effectively um, uh, in that way. So the sorts of things, it's, it's very plausible to me that indeed there is a great deal of variation in the way that, for example, adults interact with children or, or their peers interact with children in training them to pick a part of the problem and stick with it till it's done and then move on in a nice clear way. That seems like something you probably, probably your interactions are do help to shape. Right. And I would very much like to do some research on how effective or whether this is, this is a, a way forward. Um, as I say, not just in, in training children to do particular things like jigsaws well, but to use their whole mental machinery more effectively. And I'm sure there is an answer out there. It's just proving damn difficult to find it. Well, that's part of the joy and thrill of science. Indeed. But, uh, and of course, I personally think that I love basic knowledge. I think human beings are essentially born to love basic knowledge for a reason I mentioned right at the beginning of the interview, that I think it is our ecological niche, that understanding the world around us is what's made us what we are, and we are born to be, have a thirst for knowledge, to die to do that. Um, and I think basic knowledge, the, you know, the love of basic knowledge does drive a good deal of science, and it's very good that it should do so. But meanwhile, I think a very good piece of evidence that you're actually studying something useful and getting genuine understanding is if this can be used to solve problems in the outside world. In this case, the fact that people would certainly like to use their brains more effectively, and I would love to have the sort of basic scientific theoretical work that we've been doing turn into an application of that right. sort. Well, you've put us very much on the right track. Uh, thank you very much for a fascinating and stimulating conversation. John Duncan, it's been a pleasure to, uh, to talk with you. Thank you. Pleasure Thanks. to talk to you. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Neuroscience, along with separate discussions with Lisa Feldman Barrett, Kalanit Grill Spector, Jennifer Grow, and Miguel Nicolelis. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.